therapy actually becomes an environmental maternal experience, even when it includes a lot of thinking. There's a lot of interesting thoughts that go on and that are communicated back and forth. Most groups, they're just so pleased to be in them. You know, it's such a, a source of growth. That's Dr. Richard Billow, one of today's guests on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you these conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. In these episodes, you will hear from some of the key figures practicing and writing about group dynamics from around the country and the world. It's our hope that these dialogues will inform and challenge so that we can all learn more about the rediscovery of self and other that can occur through rich emotional engagement in group. Today's guests are Dr. Richard Billow and Dr. Tsaki Slonim. Richard Billow is a clinical psychologist who holds doctoral certificates in psychoanalysis and group psychotherapy. For many years, he directed the postgraduate group program at the Derner Institute of Adelphi University. A frequent contributor to psychoanalytic and group psychotherapy literature, Richard has published four books and over 60 articles. His most recent book, entitled Changing Our Minds, Richard M. Billow's Selected Papers on Psychoanalysis and Group Process, was published in 2021 by Rutledge. This book was edited by our other guest, Dr. Tsahi Slonim. Tsahi is a clinical psychologist in practice in New York City, where he lives with his wife and three boys, the youngest of which was born very shortly after the recording of this interview. He is also an adjunct professor at the doctoral programs in clinical psychology at the City University of New York and at the postdoctoral program in group psychotherapy at Adelphi University. In addition to his editorial work on Richard's book, Tsahi contributed section summaries and explications of Richard's ideas. We hope you enjoy this interview with Richard and Tsahi. Well, good morning, Tsahi and Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. First off, I just want to congratulate both of you on the publication of this book, Changing Our Minds. It is just a really phenomenal book, and there's so much that I love about it, some of which I'm excited to really dive into today. The ideas are so rich and evocative, but also the writing has such candor in it. I think, Richard, you write so honestly about your clinical experiences that it makes the reading very relatable and human. Oh, thank you. A failed novelist. <laughs> Successful clinical writer. To kind of look at some of the core ideas that you explore, one of the main themes in a lot of your work is the subjectivity of the group leader. And you say, it's all about me. Yeah. Would you say more about what you mean by that? I mean it in several sense. One, there's no getting around that people look to the leader. And a silent leader, actually, they study even more. The quiet analyst or the quiet group leader not only impinges, but tends to 
do it in a negative way by being largely depriving, which sets up certain kinds of experiences. Uh, by the way, I'm not the pers- first person to um, make this point. Merton Gill did this in the, in the 50s or early 60s when he felt, he said that the classical position is iatrogenic. So in that way, you determine a lot of the depth and the, the culture of the group. Now, in a different way, and equally important, is that there's no one way to do a group or a session or even an interchange. One of the prime movers is you, the leader. And there are degrees of authenticity, I think, in your response, rather than always a degree of truth. You aim for truth, but the best you can do is authenticity. And there's not one truth. The truth um, is in, infinite in a way. There's so many different angles and perspectives. So my, what makes my work hard, and I think for all, all therapists who attend to their, to their work, is monitoring myself and trying to understand the different uh, subjective streams that are going through me, some of, only some of which have to do with the individual or individuals in front of me, you know, we bring so much to the consultation room, even what we've just eaten or not eaten. You know, I'm constantly monitoring myself, and I try to write about that part of the, the work and the interaction. Of course, this is subjective, and, you know, there's a mythic element to it. I mean, I, I think I deserve A for effort in terms of the truth or a truth. You know, I think that varies. Certainly, it never hurts to reread or rethink about what you've done, because I think then you you constantly come up with new truths, better truths, not necessarily, but different ones. You know, the whole modern look of kind of transference started in the fifties. Beyond wrote about it. You know that the um, the real basis of your interpretations exist in, in your in you, in your personality and. And by the way, Freud talked about that too in 1912. He said that this is a method suited to my personality, which implies that each each person brings a method according to his or her personality. And hopefully as we age, our personalities mature. You know, unfortunately, sometimes personalities stultify as well. Well, that's something I also like. I think in the book, you make the point how important it is for group leaders to stay in group as members throughout their whole career so that they're continuing to get that kind of feedback. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm a member in every group. And people are not shy about telling me about deficits in my development. I mean, there's this common idea that as the group goes on, it needs the leader less. Some people even talk about that in, you know, in development or in parenting. But Rich makes the point that as the, the group members are, um, become more involved, the transference in a way deepens. And so the group leader continues to be a very important figure and in a way more important over time. Yeah, and the relationship to the leader is central to everything else that goes on, in my, in my opinion. The member-to-member relationships interact with the relationship to the leader, just the way children, and I don't mean to 
overuse that metaphor, but, you know, children relate to the culture of the family. And to switch metaphors, individuals relate to the culture of the leader of the society. Look what's happening with the, um, the effects of the, the Trump years, you know, in terms of um, both the submission, the rebellions, and the, you know, the massive change in our culture from a leader. If ever there were an excess of all about me, those would be the Trump years. But every, every generation has a leader that massively affects, um, not only through what the leader does, but through the personality. I mean, you talk about authenticity and the importance of taking an authentic stance as a leader. And I think that you actually have a particular way that you mean that. Can you say more about that, what you mean as uh, authenticity, what that looks like for the leader to be authentic with the group? I've always been proud of this formulation. Basically, a Kleinian, whatever that means. I'm always thinking about, you know, where, where are these basic underlying powerful primitive anxieties, you know, parano- paranoid and, and depressive and the, also the importance of idealization as a kind of um, manic defense. Just briefly said, people confuse sincerity with authenticity. The best clarifying essay or book I've ever read was by uh, the literary critic Lionel Trilling, who, who differentiated the two. And then I related it to a Kleinian theory. Sincerity, I think about more as a kind of idealized, uh, sentimental feeling. You know, I feel this way about you. I hate you. I love you. It's kind of simplistic. And uh, Trilling says that uh, authenticity is more exigent. It involves more ambivalence. Now, of course, that rings to the depressive position of Klein, where you, you struggle with your own mixed feelings. You know, you can love too much, you can hate too much. You know, the whole issue of ambivalence and the the nature of pain. In my mind, authenticity always involves a certain amount of of mental pain because you're never quite resolved. And, you know, everything changes very quickly. Just like a baby who takes out of the nipple and all of a sudden stops and spills it out, you know, just spits it out. So that's how we live as people. That's why we shouldn't go on too much today, because we'll overfeed our audience. They'll spit us out. It's a constant struggle. And to accept the struggle, to accept the pain and your irrationality, and not act it all out. And you do your best, but of course, you always betray yourself with your feelings. And that's part of being authentic, too, is allowing your subjectivity to um, appear without this false um, artificial neutrality that it doesn't fit with the human being. Can I um, jump in for a moment, bring in some pop culture reference here? Because we talked a little bit politics, but um, if you remember the West Wing, I think that's a great way to think about sincerity. There's a lot of sincerity there, but not much authenticity. And this happens a lot in groups, and maybe especially in groups with um, therapists, is that, the, and this, this also 
was one of the last additions to the book, the paper with uh, working with group therapists or with therapists in group. But this idea that group therapists can, or maybe patients too, can be um, overly um, positive and empathic or pseudo-empathic. You know, authenticity requires H, knowing about hate and that you don't just love your neighbor. You don't even just love your kids. You know, the issue of leaping into the unknown, you know, it relates to famous mem- without memory or desire. That's part of authenticity, too, taking a chance. You know, take, this is what I think and feel right now as a member, as a leader. By the way, I think if you do it as a leader, you're more likely to get that from, from members. The more you're uptight and, and held back, then you convey that. So, you know, where there, where's, there's plenty of difference in roles. There's also some basic commonalities. Well, I think that's a part of how you show up as a leader in a very human way not hiding your flaws, also not hiding moments of irritation or impatience, confusion. I'm usually confused by someone else's confusion at this point. I don't take it on myself. Some people think that's arrogant. Do you? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know whether it's arrogance or just some self-confidence that comes with age. I don't assume I'm confused anymore. I do acknowledge I could be wrong and or, you know, missing the important elements. Maybe that balances any sense of, of arrogance. Maybe it doesn't. Building on this and also what Saki said, therapists do have a tendency to be very empathic and loving and want to resonate. And there can be, I think, a lot of depressive anxiety, a lot of fear and concern around our own aggression. And then that gets transmitted to the groups. But I'm curious, Richard, your thoughts on that. And what do you think helps therapists kind of learn to work with some of those anxieties and frustrations that they may hide? Well, aggression is not necessarily a dirty word, is it? It's undue aggression, one-upmanship through power. You know, it really depends on I mean, because in, in a sense, it's what Saki said about H, hatred, you know, beyond shorthand, you want aggression in a group. Matter of fact, that's one of the trouble with groups that suffer from what Donald Meltzer called empathism, you know, this over-empathy. You be gentle with me, I'll be gentle with you. But you need to be aggressive to cut through. People say to me, you know, you're, you can be very critical, or you're very critical, yeah, I am. Don't you, don't you want criticism? Well, I don't always like the way you do it. All right, let me know. So when they say, I don't like the way you do it, that's a kind of counter-aggression, which I embrace. Now, I won't embrace if it's done in like a guilt-tripping way or, you know, I don't feel safe or, you know, some of the strategies that people use. You're not supposed to be that way. You're supposed to be empathic then it's up for a different kind of conversation. What would you do different then, Rich? Well, it depends on the person. I might just say, well, as you know, I'm not all that empathic, not at least in the way you define it. A lot of times that's a good segue into some exploration of, you know, the historic figure or figures that, I, that as the leader I represent. 
And by the way, that's another problem with excessive empathy is that you become um, a good object and you really don't get to um, represent a spectrum of transference figures. I'm always a good mother, father, and the, the patient is always grateful. And it really forecloses a lot of important work. And sometimes that's the unconscious motive. In the book, I try to kind of um, locate Rich within um, the context of contemporary analysis. And I do think that the focus on, you know, on history, on historical figures, even on interpretation, is something that in many circles has fallen out of favor. And so Rich's work maintains um, a focus on interpretation and, and on self-knowledge. Right. Thank you, Saki. Yeah, the, the accusation is when you do that, you're doing psychoanalysis in a circle. But it really doesn't have to be that way because it becomes a culture of the group to think about interjects and history and projections on not only to the leader, but towards other members, the role of siblings. And, and by the way, sometimes it's not little old me who's the um, bad object, but somebody else. That takes courage and trust in the, in the group and in the leader for two members to fight it out in this way. I think we're depriving ourselves of, of deep work by not introducing all the other characters in, in group, you know, all the other members. The historic figures. Matter of fact, in more and more in my writing, I talk about that. How, um, and particularly because of my um, inf being influenced so much by the uh, late in the life by the uh, French and their sense of what, you know, their different sense of intersubjectivity, which relates so much to the, what the, um, each person brings as a separate person with, with their relationship to what the French call the other. So there are always other others in group besides the members themselves. And even though I, w I think I've always done that, I can rest much more comfortably in this theoretical um, bed of uh, Lacan and Laplanche and some of the others. And I think that that links with kind of what you talk about as a, a group with passion. So can you say more about passion and the way that you think about that as a leader? Well, I think this gets back to authenticity and, and what Saki said about H. Look, you want to have emotional experiences in group. The only way you're going to learn from experience is to have emotional experience. It has to have an emotional, or otherwise it's, it becomes um, like a classroom. Not that you don't learn in a classroom, but the kind of deep change that we want, it has to hit us with a lot of impact. So... Passion involves this deep commitment to having and, and maintaining an emotional experience in group. If you think about passion on one end, you could think about a kind of deadness on the other. But that's not really a great analogy. The other end is a kind of pseudo-emotionality that you don't want to mix up with passion. So, you know, there could be crying, fighting, all that. That's not necessarily passion. So passion can be a, a quiet activity of the mind. You know, you look at a, a painting, it could just stir you deeply. Recently in the Met in New York, this couple, 
sort of we were in the same loop, and they just constantly talked to each other. I don't know what they saw on the wall because they were so busy. You notice that a lot of people maintain a respectful whisper in museums because they, they don't want to impinge on the experience of what's on the wall. Or they're kind of in more of an active conversation with what's on the wall with the artist. Exactly. Yeah, you can have passion with, with Freud and have an active conversation. Matter of fact, I think most of us do. We're constantly conversing with the figures that we love. For some people even have other, maybe hate or rebel against. I was gonna say something about this idea of working with um, interjects. So let's say someone has a, um, or had a a very um, critical or, or even abusive father, um, it's much easier to do as a therapist or, um, or even as a, as a member to notice that someone is a transference figure for you, that someone represents your aggressive, abusive father. But it's much harder to work on the interject or the, when you become the abusive father. As a therapist, to point it out, you're much more likely to elicit strong negative feelings when you point out that people's interjects and when you point out transferences. Well, and I think it can be hard to tolerate, especially if either those parts are dissociated in us, you know, the abusive father or our own interjects inside of us as leaders. And if there are areas of shame that we have in those ways, I think that those are some of the pieces that can make those kind of transferences hard to contain or easy to kind of collude in a resistance around not even wanting to go there or, uh, have there be real engagement around that? Yeah, it's so important what you're saying, Angelo, about shame. I think it's such an impingement. I've been called shameful, and maybe I don't have enough shame, but I, I think I have a lot of guilt. Guilt is easier. Is it? I think you're right. You want to say why, though? I think it's easier to feel bad about having hurt someone than to really have the experience that you are a bad person or that something about you is deficient and it's harder to tolerate. Yeah, I, I get your point, but you know, you can have such a, a deep sense of guilt that it can actually be, so, you could feel su- suicidal or, or be suicidal. That's why I really have to figure this out more because. Guilt impinges on you in different ways. I think shame frees you a little bit because you're not, it's not so related to the other person. You know, you don't have to worry about being shamed so much in group, which I think Angela's more talking, you know, referring to. So I'm not so easily shamed in group. I never said I was a good therapist. I just said I'm a therapist. So, you know, criticize me all you want. And by the way, Guilt doesn't mean that it's even set off. Um, There's not a one-to-one relationship between someone else and yourself. You know, we bring to different experiences of guilt. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm writing about these days, that, um, you know, the messages that we retranslate, as LaPange said, you know, some of them are just full of um, internalized sadism against ourselves. That's for the next couple of papers. Almost like a form of just 
punishing oneself over and over again? Yeah. There's a theory about the, you know, Beyond called it the, the super, really capital super ego. And he says it's not so much over everything, but under, so that we're, we're constantly um, haunted by, sen- by a very deep sense of um, badness. So if you think you have trouble with your shame, you've got something worse in store for you. Well, I think shame and badness really go together. It's interesting how it comes up around the topic of passion, which seems like it's all about linking and, and a kind of engagement between or with somebody else's mind, because shame seems like, you know, that thing that gets us to withdraw from the other. It gets us to hide, it gets us to close down. And then there's not really kind of the opportunity for something to get generated between two people or between a member in a group or the leader in the group. Yeah, but let's look at guilt for a second because it's so complicated. What if you had come into um, a session or you have a, a group member who either is truly frail or communicates a sense of, you know, don't hurt me, whatever the reasons are. You might be inhibited as well by, you know, such an exaggerated sense of I can harm this person. Also, you might come in with a transference. I had a, a woman in group who was at that point, elderly, God knows what, how young she was <laughs> from this position, but she had polio as a child, and she, she was a, a real fine lady, really a lovely individual, but she had a limp, and at that time, she was older than most people, and everyone, you know, was so careful with her, you know, because, you know, there's survivor guilt, she's, she's older than most of us, she's a polio victim, we're not... There's a sense where our sense of guilt deprived her. And she was smart enough to, to talk about it. You know, I'm tired of being, you know, complimented for being an older person in this group. It's important for me to distinguish the, the work of the hour from the excessive focus on the here and now. On, you know, this kind of interpersonal exchanges as if that's the be all and end all of an hour. And. I don't really think it is. Well, it's, a di- it's certainly a diversion from, let's say, Yalom, who calls himself a, you know, a herd leader. He keeps herding into everyone into the here and now. Well, it goes back to this idea of whether or not you work with history, because um, some people nowadays would say that his, you know, when you work with history, the main insult is that you're being, that you're intellectualizing. Lacan, when he, when you notice that kind of insult, because he was insulted for that all the time. So he called those who insulted him um, technicians. Or, you know, he, had his, he had his counter insult. I think it's very current now. How much do you um, want to work with history? How much do you want to bring that in? Yeah, and how that happens either defensively or in a more emotional way. But I think that that connects to something that uh, I'm very interested in, which has to do with emotional thinking, and that working with these pieces can be a deeply emotional, embodied experience. If you're interested in emotional thinking, most of what, how we think you know, has these, what Klein called the positions. There's a large element of the irrational, of the, of the primitive, 
of, you know, which gets back to, you know, I, to love, hate, and curiosity that it's from our infancy. Often I use a teaching tool of, you know, the baby having three basic uh, responses. Saki, you've probably heard this too many times already. The baby goes kind of a mmm, you know, like it's delicious, or yuck, you know, and spits it out. Or there's a kind of, um, I don't know if it's always verbalized, but a hum, an interest, a playing with the other, with you know, through the eyes. So that's the basic, you know, the yum, yuck, and mmm of human experience. Now, of course, they should be in some balance. And, you know, there's always the problem of the excess, the excess of growing children or adults, you know, too curious, too loving, too, too aggressive or hateful. So here again, I think there's some movement away from the here and now in not so much into the there or then, but into the primitive here and now. Which includes the there and then, at least how the there and then is, is playing out now. Yeah, but not everything is, you know, I hate him because of X, Y, and Z, but it relates, you know, to the helpless self, the early self, the deprived self, as much as it relates to the individual. You know, a patient was ra- raging about me, how... um I humiliated him, I did this, that, and how helpless he, he felt, and I pointed out. Well, we went in two directions. One, I said, for a guy who's helpless, you're certainly having no trouble telling me off, which is fine. And then I said, but let's look at this from the point of view of not only from what I did but or am doing, but how it feels and what it might relate to. And he got into really a deep sense of what it was like to be a very young boy. He, you know, and then he, he was just very moving. As a matter of fact, people said, you know, I've been in this group a long time and I, I never knew that about you. So moving away from, from really going deep and, and not running away from looking at something from many different points of view, including I did, you did, and, but a lot of other perspectives, including what you're talking about. Angelo, that deep emotional thinking level, which in some ways always goes back to pain. It's always an element of, even if an experience was good, it's, all, it's in some way it's over. You know, the, I, I love Klein's description of the depressive position as including pining. You know, Freud talked about giving up the, the departed and reconfecting. Klein talks about it as enriching your psyche. And part of being enriched, you know, to keep the figures alive, you pine for them, you miss them. And you're willing to experience that. Yeah. That's always part of emotional thinking. There's so much that we pine for. Even when you have a child, you know, the, as the child develops, it's, it's so wonderful on the one hand and so sad on the other. You're constantly losing the little thing that was. But I really like what, you, what you're saying in terms of loss being something that we uh, contend with and that we use to continue to enrich ourselves and be willing to experience the aliveness of that feeling rather than, I think, which, what is sometimes kind of a conventional under, uh, way of looking at it, which is you, you grieve, you mourn, and then you move on. You do both. 
you grieve, mourn, and you and you move on all at once, and you never stop grieving and mourning. In one of the sections, I um I mentioned this like an, a brief experience with my son, and I remember Rich that you and I had talked about exactly that. That that time I'm trying to give him a bath, he's getting me all wet. You know, I want to strangle him, and then I feel like oh, I'm, I'm not feeling fully a good father in that moment but also there's this you know thinking about that he's um i won't have him this little for forever he's gonna be bigger and so this moment is fleeting yeah thinking about it makes me uh, remember raising our own kids and even our grandkids and those fleeting moments but that also moves up away from just here and now, right? This idea that you can just be in the present. Right. Yeah, that's a kind of mania. And, you know, some groups are just too, there's just too much of that. Empathy can be that way. It's kind of a mania. You know, someone talks and I know how you feel. I feel that way or I felt that way or everyone knows how everyone feels and everyone's feeling nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's the passion that's missing. And you talk in one of your chapters about, I think, a long-term case that you had where you say there is pleasure and pain, but an absence of passion. That's really from Bion, yeah. He, he writes, you know, some of his short phrases are terrific, like, there was a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain, but no, no passion. You know, the kind of excess of, um, the lack of integration. Yeah. But you also talk about what has to be risked in order to move beyond that. And you talk about a catastrophic change. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's dramatic. But what Bian's really talking about is really making change that feels very scary. You know, let's, I can bring it down to earth very quickly. It happened this week. I'm, I'm running a group, and this man's marriage has not been good for a while. He's not a therapist, but his wife is, and he wants to do marital therapist. She says, well, who would I go to? I'm about the best there is, says about herself. (laughs) You've got to work on your problems. He realizes that this is kind of a gaslighting and uh, crazy making. So he says to us in a moment, he's never said this before. He said, you know, I don't know what to do. I can't, make, I can't be on my own. I can't make it on my own. I depend on her. I'm really not that developed as a person. Now, this is a man who's in his, I guess, around 50. He's a, you know, a, a successful person in his own right and um, parent. But it was, this is a core feeling. So for him to risk embracing himself Versus, you know, the, the role he ta- he's taken would be, it would be ca- a catastrophic change. It would be a moment of uh, a felt catastrophe. You know, oh my God, I can't do this. So look, we're all skiers here. So you know what it, it's like when you're going to do something you've never done before, when something feels very steep or this is going to be a catastrophe. I'm just going to break all my bones. So this guy, you know, he's going to have to risk that, you know, that leap. Now, B. 
Bion talks about it from a, a point of view of the therapist too. You know, you take a chance where you say, you know, this could be a catastrophe. So he would say, for instance, the metaphor about um, a group can um, su- survive or explode, but it can't stay static. So it's the same idea. You know, either it feels like you could, you know, you could create an explosion and there'll just be blood and death everywhere. And, and that relates, by the way, to shame and guilt, too. Pick your choice. For me, it's more guilt that, um, oh, my God, what, what am I going to do by saying this? You know, what if the group does, does fall apart? So that's how I understand it. It's, think, it's getting to a state of mind, changing your mind, to, that um, to take off. Saki thought of the, the uh, title of, of this book, which I think is really good can feel like, um, you know, it's not merely a change of mind, like I'll wear a blue shirt versus, you know, but a massive change in, in our lives. And you, you want that. You know, you want to create a culture where catastrophes, where change can feel like a catastrophe. What if I don't go home for Christmas for a week and, and subject myself to the, um, the terrible feelings I feel afterwards? You know, I can't do that. I absolutely can't do that. Yeah, it's those moments that I think are actually vitalizing in those moments where they keep us alive and I think keep us coming alive in new ways. Yeah. When you make the leap, you can you make the leap and you can go down a steeper trail or a bumpier trail. It's it's an exhilarating feeling that can last the rest of your life. I remember when, when I was at this, an eastern mountain called Sugarbush, and there was a whole black area, you know, black diamond area that I saw. I said, oh, I'll never do that. I'll never be able to do that. And, you know, those, you know, I'll never do it. And having done it, I'll never write a book. Never, it's not even in my mind. You know, and it's just a fabulous feeling of change. I'll never grow up. I'll never get the girl. I'll never be a mother. It's not all through therapy, but therapy can really help us. There was this whole um, idea in one of my groups this week about uh, showing you're crazy. A woman who said that she told the group that she, she saw this guy for just w- one video date. And after that, she, um, you know, she's planning their wedding. <laughs> and she has it all figured out exactly where it's going to be and how it's going to look. And yeah, and other people too reveal their, you know, quote unquote, they're crazy. And um, the the thing is that I think people really like it when they get invited to to others, um, you know, quote, crazy. Feels very, um, yeah, it's very deep and it's very meaningful. And it's different from what we're, you know, from often from the day to day. Well, it's about being known. Yeah. And knowing yourself, you allow yourself these forbidden thoughts. Yeah. Letting yourself both know that and then also letting other people know that about you, which I think connects to, you know, what you write about in terms of witnessing and the importance of witnessing and being witnessed. Yeah, that's an argument, again, for allowing the breadth and depth of the work and not just here and now. Well, what do you think of uh, the altercation between 
Mark and Mary. You know, you don't want to limit it to that. You know, there's so many levels to, to people fighting and disagreeing. You know, think of the baby who watches, who, who can hear, hear it in the parents' voices. Talk about a, a different kind of catastrophe. You know, a kind of death catastrophe. Death, you know, if mommy and daddy fight, if mommy's unhappy, if, you know, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. All done pre-verbally, of course. You have those moments of terror. Absolutely. But we all have moments of terror that we live with. This is from Beyond, but he said, you know, therapy is all about trying to capture pre-verbal experience in words, you know. And that goes to the, what you're interested in, Angelo, with the emotional thinking, because it's pre-verbal. So much of it. Well, that's been a major shift in the field to focus on that. They used to say that um, this, this was outside of uh, the purview of analysis, right? It's anything that's um, pre-edible, you can't get to. And then there's a real shift to including that. And what do they call it, Saki? You know, the implicit emo- emotional experience or... Yeah, well, with implicit learning versus, you know, explicit, um, but, you know, it's just one of them. But uh, so many, you know, if you look at someone like, uh, even, you know, the uh, he was a classic or uh, died just last year, Bach, but every, if you read his work, every sentence says, you know, is the first part of it says, you could look at this as, you know, from, um, Oedipal perspective, but you know if you if you really go deeper, you you see the pre-Oedipal pieces in it, and you can really look at every single sentence that he writes. Almost it, it has that structure. But yeah, and I think you know, Angela, you're more in the uh, modern analysis world, and they they claim to be all just all about the pre-verbal, no, or the pre-Oedipal. Yeah, pre-edipal, pre-verbal. Donald Stern talks about it as unformulated experience. You know, we're talking about how we can, since it's always there, actually. I mean, I think the whole notion of including it as though we need to include it, it's already included. It's just a matter of how much it's being worked with, how we have that opportunity to to, uh, symbolize and to continue to uh, make new meanings out of things that... uh, it's never complete. I actually have a, a thought in, in the other direction. Alan Shore has become very popular, and he w- talks about you know right brain to right brain communication. And I think people have taken that way too far. And it's almost as if anything that you say and use words is uh, not the meat of the work. To me, it's just a, such a false dichotomy. It's always it can include more. Just think of um, the idea if you ask someone to think about their death and they immediately feel something very profound. So the idea that words don't matter or are not important to me is um, BS. Well, it reminds me of the look on my daughter's face when she was a year and a half, two years old, how frustrated she would be. When she didn't have a word for something, she would just point. She'd go, da, da. And then how excited she would be as she learned 
what words different things had and the feeling of excitement and um, even mastery when she could start to really communicate and grasp something and uh, talk about it. The best way to think about this is the dynamic between, if you want to call it the unformulated or the pre-verbal and the verbal. Each has its purpose of um, revelation that to the extent that we can capture something of the early and words, words are valuable. At the same time, the very capturing supplies some meaning and through meaning, we get, we need to kind of um, deconstruct, deconstruct it in some way by allowing, again, what comes up. And uh, again, I think good work does that. And part of that comes from space. Even though um, I think of myself and others do as very active, I think I value space. And, and maybe that, I mean, that was one of the purposes of the witnessing paper, you know, to allow time to let experience sink in, including what we say. And, and we say it in front of others. And so there's so much generation of, of meaning on different levels, including preverbal meaning. So the, the very action of, of the work, you know, if we, I, if we appreciate the two, these two dimensions, that's what it's all about. Another way to say it, and this ties in again to your ideas of emotional thinking, is a good idea is an emotional experience. And you could think about it for a long, long time. Mastaki was re- referring earlier to the interject. Oh, my God, I'm like my, uh, my father ways I don't want to be, that can really bring up memories and pre-verbal experience and reflection. You know, that's then done on, on many different levels, sometimes including sympathy and compassion, you know, for the, the hated other, you know, the doer who was once the done to. So I agree with you, Tsaki. You don't want to um, have an excessive um, fealty to... Uh, unformulated or, you know, and of course you then have people who are, who then work non-interpretively under that allegiance, which I think deprives us and deprives the, the patient of our own thinking and our own feeling. And it becomes, that becomes technique. I'm not going to share all that I'm feeling or thinking. I don't want to impinge upon the, the patient's, um, uh, therapeutic environment, you know, the therapy, the environment becomes the growth medium. Well, that's the, the in terms of learning, it's the metaphor of um, a midwife. You're just standing by and something is going to be born from within the patient, which I don't subscribe um, to, that, that metaphor. Winnicott gets... Um... A pigeon told as as that, but if you think about some of his his most important work, he's you know he can be very the whole paper on uh, hate and the tr- kind of transference certainly not one of uh, passive uh, acceptance, but active intervention. You know his whole work with delinquents. Mm-hmm. Well, there's just a focus on the environmental mother more that become when that becomes a focus, and it's all you you're supposed to do is sit around and nurture and wait for the you know something to emerge yeah which is important too it's a dimension 
But I think that your work highlights that, Richard, that no matter what, the leader or the therapist and their silence or their activity looms large in the mind is always, I think, a kind of an active element. Yeah, I think that the therapy actually becomes an environmental maternal experience, even when it includes a lot of thinking. The groups that are alive are very, there's a lot of interesting thoughts that go on and that are communicated back and forth. And yet people, you know, they just feel the, most groups, they're just so pleased to be in them. You know, it's such a, a source of growth. Well, I have to say, I'm really pleased to get a chance to be with both of you throughout this interview. This is a lot of fun. I was wondering if you would say something about your kind of creative process as a writer. A lot, a lot of torture <laughs> and a lot of excitement and enjoy- enjoyment. One thing I suggest is sleeping with a pet. And if you wake up with an idea, whatever you do, get to that pet. Do not assume you're going to remember it in the morning. But the, the morning for you, for when you start writing, is very early. It can be. <laughs> True confessions. How early? Well, actually, a lot of my problems started in, Colo- in not, yeah, Colorado and Utah, where, um, you know, because of the time change, I would get up at their three, your three o'clock, which is my five o'clock, was, and then I'd go to the, the computer and start working. And about two hours, two or three hours later, I'd be exhausted. I'd go back to bed. Sometimes I still get up and go back. And sometimes I just get up very early. And um, it's rather, talking about change, I don't think we stay up past 9.30 or 10, ever. So and when I go out west to ski, which is often, as, as some people, as you know, I'll try to go to bed by 8 or 8.30. So I'm not a great dinner companion, for other reasons as well, but particularly that. So um, you've got to surrender to the process. You've got to let it take over and haunt you. And, I don't, and many people say, uh, I don't write, I rewrite. That's certainly my, what I do. And I, and I suggest for people... Write it out. I don't care how bad it is, how, how poorly you express yourself. Write it out. Get your ideas down there. And then have good editors like Saki, you know, who, who will have the courage to criticize. And, um, and I, I am blessed with um, people who have really helped me that way. Do you want to share anything, Saki, about your experience writing and how you relate to it? Well, in this situation, doubly torturous. <laughs> No, it, it is a, in some ways it's a lot of fun because I I try to see to make different connections and interesting associations and literary references and so that's what I I was trying every time um, I really um, try very hard to write clearly but um, in this case it was also you know speaking of other figures I mean I had. You know, Rich, you know, he would go over every time and, you know, he was with his usual gentle self, um, <laughs> would give his uh, comment. Soft touch. Yeah, soft touch. That's, you know, his forte. Um, but also he really took care of me. I mean, he wanted, I think he really wanted me to 
present myself in, in, in the best way possible. So he, yeah, he, um, so I felt both, you know, that it was, I was pressed to do good work um, and, and also someone that cared about me. That was my experience. Yes. I, I marvel. I really, and I marveled and I, I, so often how, how well you did it. And I remember we were working on the last contribution that you were going to make. Was it pulling everything together or so, something? Do you remember, Saki? The introduction? You mean the main introduction? It wasn't the main, was it? It was, there was something, and he, he did about three, three drafts that really sucked. And I said, look, I, this is too big a job. This, let's just forget it. I said, it's unfair of me. You've done so much great work. There's so, you know, the section headings are wonderful. Each chapter is really, I marveled. I still do at how well he, he says things that I don't even think I said as well often. So finally said, let me try one more time. And I said, try, you know, I said, but I, I really feel, talk about guilt. I really feel bad. Um, let, let it, you know, it's fine if you let it go. And he, he came up with the, I just thought, superb work the, la the last time you did it. And it matched every other part of the book that you contributed to. We rehearsed this ahead of time. I have a script here. <laughs> I sent it to him, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it highlights the way that the book does feel like a dialogue between the two of you at times. And I think that that adds to part of how engaging and alive it, it feels to read through it. Angela, you're, you're a wonderful, um, not only a narrator of, and the chair of this little group that we have, but you're so appreciative and, and have such um, deep understanding of what we're trying to do. It's really very nice. Thank you. You're welcome. It feels wonderful to hear. And I'm just so excited for this book. And I, you know, we should also give uh, Hillary Callen Curtis a shout out because she did, a, I think she did a wonderful job also uh, editing. But uh, so exciting that this is out there. And I really hope that the listeners will um, check it out. Hardcover. I, I think you should recommend that they buy the hardcover. No. <laughs> no, that doesn't. The, hard, the hardcover doesn't have the beautiful um, cover of it. Uh, the, um, the Russian Malevich who did the, the original. Yeah. Oh, you got to show that cover. How did you pick that image? I was at a a museum that had a, a really poor show with um, my wife and one of our kids, our grown children. And I felt, actually, I felt embarrassed that I'd taken it to this because one of my favorite uh, Latin artists. So I said, let's go to the bookstore and at least look through the, some of the books and maybe we'll, you know, I'll show you some things. And flipping and I said, oh my God. And I saw this and I said, that is the cover. That should be the cover. And I checked it out, and uh, my wife agreed. And my daughter, who doesn't love the same art I do, said, well, it's passable. <laughs> I said, no, it's great. And I think it is. Yeah. And I was glad it was Malevich, too. It's a great choice. Yeah. Well, all around, just a wonderful book. And I want to thank the two of you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. It's been a great experience sharing and talking and exploring these ideas with both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Angelo. Yeah. Yes. You too, Saki, both of you. 
Thank you for listening to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. If you'd be interested in supporting our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback for us or have suggestions for future guests and topics, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. Also, visit our website, fcgps.org, to stay updated on future conferences, workshops, and training programs. We appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon.